3617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to you, the listener, those in death investigation and supporting roles. I so am so honored that you join me again this week and every single week. Uh, we're growing our listener base and it, it's exciting to see more and more people jumping on, listening to the show. And I'm able to correspond and meet uh, many of you, at least virtually. Uh, many of you I can meet actually in on in person a lot of times. So as this comes out live, this is the um, towards the end of June 2018, and this show is going to just kind of be the second part of last week's show where we, we're just going to talk a little bit more about PTSD and compassion fatigue because, it, again, June is PTSD Awareness Month. Now, this, this show, though, we're going to talk about a real situation in which a teenage girl got killed in a car accident and the relationship that she had with the local 911 operators police things like that and how this hit pretty close to home and i think you'll find it very interesting and and probably can relate to some of this that goes on this is a real situation a uh, real girl real death and real police and and real dispatchers and how this occurred i think you're going to enjoy it Anita Brooks was here in the studio and we talked about it. You're not going to enjoy the fact that a teenage girl got killed, but I think you're going to enjoy the conversation and that you can relate to some of the stuff we talk about of how it affects your life as well. So you're going to enjoy that conversation. But before we get into that, I want to give you a couple of training updates. Again, this being June of 2018. Next month is July and July starts our next Medical Legal Death Investigation Online Academy. And so, of course, that is now you're able to take a certification exam. I'll talk more about that later if you wish to. But the exam, the uh, 40-hour course starts next month, July 14th, I believe it is. Uh, but anyway, you can go to the training site and find that. I go to coronerschool.com and you can get all the information there. Of course, also July, we have our buried and surface body recovery class on site class here in missouri it's a fantastic class we've got anthropologists coming down we're actually going to do surface recovery buried body recovery clandestine grave it's going to be a great time we're also going to look at some differences between human bone and animal bone how can you tell some quick differences uh, in some of the most commons and uh, and then we're going to go out to the field and we're actually going to do some recovery so a little bit of mix of classroom and field work. So it's going to be a great three days. So I invite every one of you to come and check that out. Again, go to cornertalk.com. You can go to the training link. You can find all the training there. Any questions you may have about how to get involved in that, how to come to that would be uh, would be there. But you also reach out to me if you have any other questions. There's a lot of training going on. There. There's a lot of new stuff coming up. Of course, the Death Investigator Magazine uh, will be coming up. Uh, the first issue will release in July. I'll tell you more about how we, we, we had pre-subscribers. I will tell you more within a couple of weeks how you can now subscribe to get your copy. If you did subscribe under the pre-subscription uh, launch, 
you will be getting your link here within a couple of weeks to get your uh, free subscription started. All of that is coming along. We've got uh, several things. It's going to start in July, being the third quarter of the year that it has its first services around training and to make you a better investigator. A lot of things that people have asked us for has just taken time to put together, and that stuff is now uh, becoming available. So on this week's episode, I'm not going to give you anything about what's happening in the news. And just obviously, be quite honest with you, trying to get the magazine launched, the certification exam that we've been working on, all of this other stuff coming up. I honestly haven't been watching the news. I do have some alerts come in and I have some things that I could have went over, but they really were kind of mundane. There really wasn't anything that affected us as a as a group. So I, I'm going to skip the in the news segment because I would just be giving you something that you know, isn't really necessary. So I'm just going to move right on into the conversation that I had with Anita. I think you're really going to like that conversation again, like I introduced a while ago. It's something that you need to stay tuned for and and, and really listen to and find yourself in, in, in here because it might not be that you've had a, a close teenage girl die, but something that has happened in your career that you can relate to and how this is. And then, of course, next week we'll be back and we'll move on out of, out of the compassion fatigue PTSD stuff. But again, every few months I want to bring it up and remind everyone of, of what we need to do to protect our mental health and some ideas that again last week we talked about pts not even the d you may not have a disorder but i'll guarantee you you have some post-traumatic stress you have some compassion fatigue you have this in your life so you may not be a disorder yet or you may not want to admit that it's a disorder either way it can affect you so how can you prevent it from becoming a disorder so anyway, just put that back into your into your mind, and then we're going to move on to some other training topics and some a lot more exciting things happening. So without any further delay, let's jump into that conversation I had with Anita Brooks. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, so I'm excited to be back with Anita Brooks in the studio again today. Anita, welcome to the Corner Talk Studios. Great to be here, as always, Darren. You know, I don't always get you into the studio, but it's nice that I'm able to get you in here twice in, in actually just a short amount of time. And and with this, again, as I pre-introduced being uh, June 2018, but June is PTSD Awareness Month. And like we talked about in another episode, is PTSD not always D, because you may not have a disorder. You may just have post-traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, things like that. But it's not a disorder yet. And when we talked about that last time, one of the big keys on that is, uh, one, you may not have a disorder. Two, you might have the disorder, but the word disorder is what keeps you from accepting it. So let's take that out. Let's just say you you do, in fact, have uh, situations where post-traumatic stress and compassion fatigue will affect you. Can you agree with that, Anita? I would agree with that. And I think that it isn't always a disorder, not necessarily something that's debilitating, but it still has an effect or an impact. And especially with the triggering effect, we've talked about this, Darren, that there are certain things that we experience, especially in these fields where you are triggered by either something you see visually, something you hear, something you smell, a taste, anything that we associate with our senses that can bring us back to that traumatic event again. Exactly. And I want to talk about a real-life situation, a real-life case that we are both involved in. Uh, and again, it's something that we've detailed in the book Code. But it's it's something that, that I think will hit home. Now, 
this happens to actually be from a 911 operator, 911 dispatcher. It was an event that occurred with them. Uh, we're both familiar with the case, but uh, in short, this has to do with a teenage girl getting killed, the 911 dispatcher being involved uh, with a call and things like that. So, uh, But I want to talk about not only what happened and what happened in the real case with the, with the teenager being killed, but how that affected everyone around th- this case. So uh, why don't you, Anita, give us just a brief overview of the incident, and then we'll kind of break down piece by piece. Sure. This is such a tragic story, and I'm sure it's one that has played out more than once. But, you know, imagine yourself being that 911 dispatcher. You're you're sitting in that chair, and, and these calls are coming in, and, you know, and, and some of them are like maybe a little frustrating for that 911 operator because, you know, maybe someone's calling, you know, it's silly. I've even heard people say, you know, I've had someone call me and say, you know, call 911 because they didn't get ketchup with their French fries. You know, that's kind of ridiculous to us, but those are the things they deal with in the everyday. But then there's the other side of that equation. When that call comes in, it's a very serious call as this case was. A young woman was in a car accident and come to find out it was because she had been texting and driving something that, you know, so many of us are trying to encourage against and even to further the tragedy was the fact that the 911 operator knew the young woman. She was the daughter of a local sheriff's deputy. This young lady had grown up around those who worked in emergency services. She often came into the 911 operator office when she got out of school and then she was in the accident. And, and I, as I imagined what that must have felt like for that dispatcher, sitting there feeling helpless, and you're blind. You know, you can't see what's going on out in the field. So I think in some ways that probably almost magnified the effects for the person. Well, you know, the interesting part about this is it whenever there's a a car crash, however, each jurisdiction may call them differently, but, but a, a, a 1050 or a car collision or whatever your jurisdiction calls it, the dispatcher doesn't necessarily know who it is, right? So there was a car crash and it, it is what it is. In this particular case, what really caused this to be a, a bigger tragedy was as this dispatcher was, was sending out the police and the fire and everything that happens with every, every, every other crash. Of course, when the police get there, they start running license plate numbers and start looking for the, all of a sudden the dispatchers running these license plate numbers and they recognize who the car belongs to. Then we have the situation where the car belongs to so-and-so, but the description was a, you know, teenage female blonde. Well, this dispatcher is realizing at this point who this is, but they have to maintain composure and continue to work with this. And that's where this became very tragic was this was a very good friend's daughter that and very good friend of hers that she dealt with almost every day. And she had to mentally compartmentalize that and do her job. At this point, she didn't know the girl was dead, but to do her job to save this girl's life. Yeah, you know, when you think about so this was a, a young lady who would not only come into the 911 office, but she would actually interact with this particular dispatcher on a regular basis, they developed a friendship, a relationship. And, you know, the dispatcher almost saw this young woman as an extension of her own family. I mean, she felt like family to her. And you think about that, how many times is a dispatcher or someone who's working in any field of emergency services 
having to now deal with someone who is a family member, someone there's an emotional connection to, and yet the responsibility is you have to conduct yourself with the utmost professionalism no differently than you would in any other case. And what makes this not really unique, but that happens all over America, or all over the world, actually, but in the United States, there are more police departments and 911 dispatch centers and things like that in smaller areas. You know, there's, yeah, there's big metropolitans, but I'm talking about the smaller ones where, you know, the dispatchers and the police, they know each other more. When you're, you know, someplace like New York or even St. Louis or whatever, it's such a huge thing. So there are those dispatchers that end up having to work cases that are their loved ones or friends or family, but not as often. So in this case, not only did we have the dispatcher that knew the girl, all of a sudden now let's take all the other services in. The the sheriff's deputies that arrived on the scene, this was their friend's daughter. Now, luckily, in this particular case, the daughter's parents didn't arrive. He wasn't on duty. But what if he had of? What if he'd have just responded to a 1050, right, responded to a car collision, and when he gets there, he realizes that it's his daughter. That can happen. But in this case, the, the other deputies knew who it was. The fire department knew who it was. The, nine, the uh, ambulance people knew who it was. So they're working this girl, knowing who this girl is, knowing her parents. And they're not able to save her. Now, this is a small rural area. You've got a coroner involved. Now, the coroner, not only does he know her. Now, he, the coroner didn't know her, per se, but knew the parents. Now, now you've got to go. He has to go tell the parents that their daughter is dead and these are his friends. So it wasn't just a 911 operator. A 911 operator, however, was stuck in a room not knowing what's going on. And this is what I want to bring up. The call came in. She's running plates. She's doing all this stuff, but she doesn't know what's going on because she's not there. Everybody else knows what's going on. The trauma really hit when the ambulance personnel called back to dispatch and said that uh, in, in, in basically they said there wasn't going to be transporting and to contact the medical examiner's office or the coroner's office to respond. At that point, the dispatcher realized, oh my God, she's dead. Yeah. I mean, and then you have to get off work and go home and make sure that the kids have their bath and their homework done. Like nothing ever happens. That ain't the way that, that's, that, that ain't the way that works. No, and and not only do you have to go home and you have to try to um, almost pretend as if you're okay when you really are not, but then the next day you have to get up and go to work and do it all over again. And so it does cause somewhat of an inner shift in a person when you have a very relationally connected case like this. Things are never going to quite be the same again because there will sometimes be flashbacks and triggers. And that, listen, that's part of being human. What is has been a challenge, and I think that we're starting to see this change in a positive way, is previously, though people were expected to just stuff that down, shove it as far as you could, never talk about it again, try not to think about it again, and then go on with life as normal. But who is capable of that? None of us are. So whether it be a 911 dispatch, fire, police, whatever, we all have these situations we face. 
And again, the reason why we're talking about this real life case is because it's easy for us to talk about real life cases more than just, you know, a theory. So here we have this situation where we have multiple agencies involved in something that's just tragic. Now, even if it's, you know, even if it's not somebody they know, you know, we've heard dispatch stories where they was talking to someone and, and heard them take their last breath or oh, talking to somebody that, that ended up being victim of assault and dying. I mean, we've got these type of things. Police officers deal with that all the time. Just just the other day here locally, a 911 call came in, infant not breathing. The city police arrived on the scene. The mother ran out of the house with the baby, pushed the baby into this police officer's arms, and took off running down the road. The reason was because the her husband worked not too far from the house. And her theory was, well, she didn't really didn't even thinking. She was going to run to her husband's employer and get him because he didn't have couldn't have a cell phone at work or while he was working. So here the city police officer is holding a baby that was pronounced dead at the scene. It was dead. There was nothing he could do. But he started trying to uh, how do you just go home and deal with that? You just got a babe, dead baby shoved in your arms. Well in this back to this original this particular case we're talking about we have a whole community of people that has to heal, not only the dispatch, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but now the deputy sheriffs that arrived on the accident got this dead teenager out of the car. She's all beat up after hitting this tree. Well, now I have to not only deal with this, I've got to go see her mom or her dad. I've got to be at the funeral. I've got to uh, see them at work and, and department events. And every time you see them, do you not think, I wonder how they're doing since their daughter died. Well, that that is just as emotional on the other deputies as it is on the parents themselves. It is. And and those interactions that you're describing, Darren, so often what you see, especially again with people who work in these fields, is well, it's it's just silence. We just won't bring it up. We won't talk about that. But that's actually one of the most dangerous things that any of us can do is try to shove those emotions down and pretend they don't exist because they're there. A lot of people don't realize there's a difference between grief and mourning. Grief is something that you hold inside, but mourning is the expression of your grief. It's the outward expression of that. And if we do not adequately express our grief, then what we do is we become volcanic. You know, we're holding those emotions in. We hold them as long as we can, but that pressure builds. Every time you see that parent, there's a little bit of a trigger. Every time something else reminds you of what happened that day, it's going to be in your subconscious mind, even if you don't allow it to consciously come forward. But the fact is, it's not going to dissipate. It's not going to just go away on its own. It's there. And at some point, you can count on it. There will be some kind of explosive event. No, I agree 100%. But so let's, uh, let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. And let's talk about how to deal with this. And that's the whole point of this show. Here's a real thing that happened. So how does the dispatch, the fire, everybody, how do they start to process this? Because we're talking about a real event, but this event in similar fashion occurs every day in every agency. So so maybe it doesn't involve the coroner this time. It may involve the police next time. But somebody out there is always dealing with something like this that they have to 
contend with. Maybe the tragedy isn't as big or little or what, but to them it's something. So let's start walking through. Here's a real life example. How does this department start this healing process because of this, their friend, their friend got killed, their teenage, it's a girl, it's a kid. It's a, where do we start with the process of not letting this eat us up? And then let me, let me say this. A lot of times we will say, uh, just push it down and we're not even going to think about it. That, that's how we deal with stuff. We just push it down because we see so much horrific things that we just say, I don't, you know, it don't really mean anything to us. That's not always healthy. So, and you're the expert here. So where do we need to start the healing process whenever our listener has this happen to them? Maybe not specifically, but something is eating at them. Now, what do we do? Well, you just used a key word a couple of times, and that's the word process. One be intentional to process. Use that word as a verb. Okay, take action with that. So part of processing is to be intentional to talk about it instead of trying to stuff it. Talk to some of the people around you. It's so interesting to me how you'll, you'll see a group of people and everyone's kind of you know holding back, holding something in. But one person takes that courage to speak up and voice what's bothering them. And you'll see the look of relief, almost like a wave going around the room because someone finally was bold enough to speak it out loud. And that gives everyone else permission to do the same. And everyone has the same need. You know, I just interviewed um, a, a woman for our Death Investigator magazine that's going to be coming out, Darren. And And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating was she has understood this principle. And so she has created a very intentional environment with her departments that they actually will sit down around the table and they will almost do like uh, an after action review where they intentionally just sit down and talk about it, talk it through and not just talk about the, the events that happened themselves, but how they felt about the events. And again, we want to avoid those feelings, but avoiding those feelings is dangerous. It is unhealthy every time. So in the beginning of the situation, of course, you're dealing with it. In this particular case, it went to the funeral. In other cases, you might talk to your partner, your uh, your you know work partner or your, your spouse or something. And that's fine. You can talk those feelings out. But just because you talk at it once doesn't mean it's over forever so how do we how do we get this uh, this thing ongoing because tomorrow there's a new problem you know next week there's a new tragedy there's always something going on it's not just one time i i I talked to somebody the other day about um the job that i do in death investigation and and this one particular day i had three deaths uh all before noon (laughs) one of them was a homicide and it was a that was the last one we worked on. Worked on it all day. It was quite a deal. But but one of the this person I was talking to had nothing to do with death investigation. But he had said, you know, I'm 56 years old, this guy said, and I have seen one dead body outside of a funeral home in my entire life. And he said it was quite by accident that I seen that because I went to check on a friend and found him dead. He said, how do you deal with seeing dead people every single day or multiple times a week? And not only just dead, but sometimes in tragic ways. And that got me to thinking, he is like millions of people that has no idea what we do. 
He's seen one dead person outside of a funeral home in his life. He's 56 years old. He has no idea what we deal with. So we are a weird bunch of people to live this lifestyle. The point I'm trying to make is it has to affect us. Police, fire, ambulance, dispatch. It does affect us and it does change us, right? So we have to consider this ongoing, again, this situation. Every time I see her dad at work, is that going to cause a problem? Every time I have another accident and somebody dies, do I think of this little girl? Uh, How do we process this every day ongoing? Because bottling it up is what drives us insane. And then we get into the the affairs, the drinking, the drugs, the burnout, the suicide, the quitting. We want to keep our job and do a good job, Anita. So how do we live this lifestyle and not let it change us? Well, no, I'm sorry. Let me back up. It probably will change us. But how do we live this lifestyle and not let it consume us? Great question. One of the things that I recommend is regular scheduled meetings to get together and deal with it. Whether you do that weekly or monthly, or I would say at the most quarterly, but I think that's a stretch. But I would get together with your peers to discuss the events that have happened. And I will say, especially in the case if there's a a close to home case that hits like that, make sure that you include as many departments as you can. One thing people miss is, you know, we think, well, we need to gather with the people that we work shoulder to shoulder with. But what about the people who are just an arm extension away? There's an effect. There's an impact. Bring each other together in that kind of, of set, you know, setting where we say we're going to get together on this date at this time, you know, this often. Not everyone's going to be able to make it every time. But there is an opportunity to come and vent and vent with people who get it. Vent with people who are like-minded. Vent with people who maybe they have found solutions that have helped them. And maybe you can learn from that. Or conversely, maybe you've learned some things and maybe you can share with others and you can encourage other people. But the thing is, the healing will happen much more efficiently, much more quickly if you come together. And that's been proven time and time again. So outside of coming together, what else can we do personally? You know, because that thing is a great idea. But maybe I'm not the one. That's a great, I'm hearing this, and I think this is great. But I'm going to have to go spearhead this. I'm going to have to start talking to people and getting people on board, and 90% of the people ain't going to want to, or it's it's whatever, department heads. And I may not have this available for a while. And even if I do have it available, it only meets once a quarter. So whether it meets once a quarter or I don't have it at all, what can I do on a on a personal level on just me? You know, maybe I find a friend, yes. But what else can I do to get this weight off of me and off of my head that I can do a good job and not let it consume me? Well, one thing is, is do not try to run away from it. Don't try to run away from your thoughts or your feelings. I want to interrupt you here just a second, because what you just said, make a key to something I want to say. Alcoholics have to admit they're alcoholics. If you're addicted to drugs, you have to admit that you're an addict regardless. So what you're saying is the first thing we have to do is we have to admit this could be a problem or it may turn into a problem. Let's address it up front. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah. And, and, and just take the word problem out of it that, you know, the word problem may scare some people off. Here's the thing. It doesn't even have to be a problem, but if you have thoughts that you're trying to bury or that you're trying to ignore, then it's an issue that needs to be dealt with. You need to face it head on. That's the courageous choice. So I would say that first and foremost, don't pretend as if it doesn't bother you. Don't numb yourself out because I will tell you, if you develop a habit of numbing your own emotions, that will definitely catch up with you. But uh, okay, I, I interrupt a lot. <laughs> I, I want to explore that a little bit. Numbing our own emotions. So, so again, you understand. You do get this, right? Over the last couple of years, you're my therapist. I mean, <laughs> no, but <laughs> you're understanding this, right? So, so I, I this whole podcast is about. Uh, there's a disguise of helping others. You're actually my counselor. Okay, well, I, I'm not a I'm not a licensed therapist, though. We want to be clear about that. Well, yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to be. You're still my therapist. Okay, so, but. But but I think I'm, I think I'm average. Okay, I'm everyday Joe, right? And so my my point is, you say you you said about not letting it, you know, callous your emotions and things like that. But I think that's natural. I, I mean, my emotions, my emotions are calloused. I mean, we've talked about it on past shows. I, I'm not saying that I that I have necessarily, you know, that I'm antisocial. But it has callous. I have to be a little bit calloused or I'm not going to be able to do what I do. So what do you mean by that? Well, of course. And and we have talked about this, Darren. There is a certain protocol that is necessary to do this job where you have to set your emotions aside. The danger that I've seen from the research that I've done, like I said, I'm not a licensed therapist or counselor, but I am a person who has researched this extensively. I've spoken to many therapists and counselors. They've put their stamp of approval on what I'm getting ready to say. You, If you get so habitual about shutting your emotions off, again, out of necessity to do the job, but it parlays into every aspect of your life. And that's what you begin to do all of the time. That's where the danger is. Actually, you need to do the opposite. You need to do, you need to go against instinct. Instinct will tell you to shut yourself off and keep it all to yourself. But you need to exercise that intentionality to talk to at least one person. You know, you ask, what can you do? You know, another thing is write your feelings down. Now, listen, that may sound silly, but it works. It's that process of getting the emotions from inside of you, outside of you, whether you put it in black and white, whether you're talking to a single individual, whether you're talking to a group. But the point is to face those emotions because, again, instinct is to run away from them. But that's where the danger is. You've got to be able to face what you truly feel. If you don't, it will catch up. So I've also, we've, we've talked in the past about similar things and getting away for a weekend, uh, getting away from the job, date night that has nothing to do with work, finding a place that you, for me, going to our cabin and just doing nothing. Yeah. Gets and exercise. Away from the, exercise, I run, mm-hmm. and that helps. Uh, and... But but it's something that's not work related. They going to the cabin or going away, going you know, getting on the water or something like that. Uh, 
helps your doing another activity, fishing, if you like fishing or hunting or, or just going golfing, mm-hmm. going and doing something that is not. Now, golfing made me think of something. Golfing is great, but we always go golfing with our friends. Okay. Well, I don't golf because I can't maintain a religion and golf at the same time. So <laughs> I just quit. So golf is just, you know, it makes me too, too upset. So, but when we golf, we golf with friends, right? So here's the thing. Your friends are your work friends. You go golfing with your work friends. You're going to, okay, sometimes you're going to talk about a case and that's, that is therapeutic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But yet, I'm saying you need to do things that is not work-related. And so being with your friend talking about work, yeah, it's therapeutic, but it's not getting away from work. So find a non-work friend to golf with. Go to, the, go to a cabin, go to fishing, do something. Find a friend that's not in this business Spend some time with, or just by yourself, but get away from the business for a while. Get away from police work and dispatch and fire and death. Get some time away once a month, certainly once a quarter. But if you can get away one day a month, one week in a month out of the business, I think that means a lot. It does. And there, and so when I talk about facing your feelings too, I'm so glad you said that. You don't want to obsessively though begin thinking about it all of the time. That's not healthy either. You need mental breaks. You need that opportunity to just allow yourself to be a normal human being again. And for some, if you've gotten really out of practice, that's going to feel awkward at first. It's going to feel uncomfortable. And you're going to think, I don't like this. But it's like anything else. If you continue practicing it, it stops feeling awkward. You begin to feel more comfortable in that venue, if you will. But the point is, is to create the balance, the balance of facing your thoughts and emotions and the balance of getting the mental breaks as well. So you can just be alive. And there's something about writing it down. You said that I've heard of two things about this. One, if you write it in a notebook or like a diary or something like that, or a journal, whatever you want to call it, that that's okay uh, in one way. But then it, in my mind, I don't like journaling and things like that because I don't, I don't like a record. I mean, just, I don't really like a record. Just leave it there. So, but then also I can go back and read all of these bad things. Well, to me, I don't like that. So if I'm going to journal it, and this is for me, and you tell me how far off I am, I may write it all down. I may I may type it out, write it down or whatever. And when I'm done, I get all of my emotions out and I talk about it and whatever I do. And then I shred it. Yeah, I mean, and there's a few um, schools of thought based on the research that I've done on this. You, there's a, some people, it works very well for them to write it down and keep the record. For some people, it actually is healthy for them to be able to go back and look at how far they've come, the progress that they've made. If you're using it to make progress, but if all it is, is one negative after another, all that is, is just read every time you read it, look at all this negative in my life. Well, especially if you're doing that obsessively, for sure. But there are some people who they shred it, like you said, some people burn it, some people bury it. But the point is, is some people it's it's the the process of getting it out of you. And then doing something that's healthy for you from there. It's not going to be exactly the same for every person. But find what works for you. The point is this, don't stay stuck with those feelings stuck inside of you. 
And I think that our mindset means a lot here. And we're going back to this this teenage girl that got killed in a car wreck. And all of uh, all of us knew her. All of everybody was around knew her. Now, some of this is mindset. So I don't mean mindset where you say, I'm going to just click it off. It, that's not necessarily going to help and be healthy. But you have to have a mindset in, in some ways like that. But you've got to be able to say, I accept Things like this could be a problem. I accept that working in this industry for this long can cause issues. I accept that if I don't take a overt act to talk about this, that this will end my career. The problem I think comes in is when we don't accept it, then we go meandering off through the dark and 10 years later, we've lost our job, our marriage or whatever, because we never accepted it as real. That's what the old timers did. Like we've talked about this. Now administrations are changing and they're younger and people are recognizing this. Regardless of what you do to help yourself, I believe the first thing is you have to realize and accept that I accept this. This could affect me. Now what do I do to fix it? I think that's the first step right there, don't you, is accepting it as a possible. I do. And and as you know, Darren, when we've done trainings, I have had many of the old timers that you described come up to me with tears in their eyes, some of them absolutely crying and have said to me, I wish that there would have been training on this 30 years ago, 35 years ago. I wish that it would have been okay to talk about all of these things that I've been holding inside all of these years. It's destroyed my marriage. It's destroyed my relationships with my kids. I've heard so many horror stories of that. One of the exciting things is there is change in the air. It is becoming acceptable to acknowledge it, to face it, to do something about it. And that is the first and most important step. And then again, find that part that works for you. If you have a nudge that something feels off, Pay attention to it. If there's something that's traumatic that's weighing on you, find a safe place and talk about it. And also remember that even bad things can be transformed into something good. If you have been through an event that has especially touched you in a negative way, ask yourself if there's any kind of a positive purpose that could be born from that. What can you do? You know, in this case, I know that there were people who did some beautiful memorializations in honor of this young woman and her family, and that actually helped to further the healing process. Are there groups of people that you could go talk to? In this case, you know, it was a young woman who was was texting and driving. Are there groups that you could go talk to about the dangers of texting and driving? And maybe you can't save that young lady, but maybe because this was such a powerful impact on your life, it is a catalyst that makes you go and speak to others and save other lives. And I think that is a good form of therapy as a coroner's office, police department. But let's talk about coroner's office for a second. When you can have public events where you talk about cardiac disease or texting and driving or or things like this you're not just seeing a tragedy you're using that to help others prevent it and i think being involved in the prevention side helps 
I think that's therapeutic. I think it helps to relieve some of that. You can't necessarily talk about specific cases, but you can certainly say, I've worked four cases in, the, in my career of texting, or I've worked. Well, that kind of gets it out there. Uh, and, and, and you don't have to say the person, uh, there's things, there's privacies or whatever. But it does help that you're helping educate other people to prevent it. And I think being involved in the prevention, like you said, helps us to relieve that inner tension in us of dealing with it. I agree with that. It does. It brings about that positive purpose. And listen, there are groups out there that are always hungry for speakers who can educate and inspire. And and because of what you deal with, you can do that. Schools, chambers of commerces, um, other business groups, you know, just think about that. Who are those people groups that gather together that you might have something informative and maybe something life-changing to share with them? What are the messages that you can share? Right, I agree. That's the, that's the key thing is finding a way to work within what we do, work within our job, and what are things we can do within our job to help other people, involve other people, but not dump on other people. Correct, exactly. If you're going to do that, you do. You want to make sure that you, whatever message you have to share, remember this, the message is not about you. The message becomes about them, that audience. And so what is the takeaway? What is the point that you want them to be able to leave with? And what will leave them with a positive and encouraging view that came from a very sad and tragic event. Exactly. Now, as we kind of end this uh, conversation today, I, I just want to reemphasize one more time that the whole point about bringing out this case and the, the couple of shows that we've done this month talking about uh, compassion fatigue and post-traumatic stress is, again, that it is real. I, I've said it probably too much, but it is real. It is something that we have to accept exists. And we have to work to where to work towards preventing it from a f- negatively impacting us, meaning addictions or job loss or burnout or suicide or things like that. Um, so and, and that's why for the listener out there, I want them to understand that, uh, yes, every few months we bring this up, but it's so important to keep it in the people's uh, mindset, minds in their ears that. This is something we have to watch out for. Uh, and you've done a lot for this over, uh, you speak to, to groups all over the country and, and not just law enforcement and, and police groups, which you do, but also with uh, charity organizations and hospitals. And, and, and there's lots of organizations that you deal with, even from Christian ministry, ministries and organ and uh, tissue donations. And, but your, your theme is always seems the same sometimes is self-care is important. You can't, you can't help anybody else, whether it be Christian ministry, the hospitals you deal with, all these other groups we talk to. If you don't have self-care, then you can't help someone else. If when you're on an airplane, the first thing to tell you is put the mask on yourself first before you put it on your child. Because once you go unconscious, you can't help your child, right? So from to end this show, I, I, wanna, I want the listeners to understand this. When it comes to mental health, we need to put the mask on us first before we can help anybody else. Yes. One of the things that I share with people is an empty cup has nothing to pour into others. Why did you decide to go into this field of work? I have yet to meet any individual, male or female, no matter what age or stage they're at, that has not told me that they had a heart to help other people. 
I mean, listen, this is a sacrificial kind of work. But you cannot help other people. You cannot pour into them. You cannot adequately serve them if you have emptied yourself out to the point that there is nothing left. I've met too many who are burned out, uh, stressed out to the point that they almost can't function anymore. I've met people who've walked away from their job or their career, or even worse, they lost their job or career. They desperately wanted to hold on to it, but they weren't given the choice because they didn't take enough care of themselves that they were able to do what they needed to do anymore. That's why I speak into this, because I care about the people who care. Yes, that's very good. And I think that's a great place to end. Anita, again, thank you for coming a couple of times this month to the studio and talking about these issues. And thank you for what you do around the country, not only for the other groups you speak to, but especially for who you speak to in the law enforcement realm, death investigation, uh, all, all of us in our public service, for what you do to us and for us. We very much appreciate that. Uh, and again, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here and speak to your audience, Darren. All right, I'm back with you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm sure you did. You learned a lot from Anita. Anita is fantastic, and I'm glad when she's able to stop by and spend time here in the studio. Uh, Just a couple of final words of closing. Remember, uh, the magazine will be coming out next month if you're waiting on that. I also talked last week, I think it was, about emails. Uh, If you are wanting to get our email uh, notifications and things like that, you know, if you're not getting them, you need to resubscribe. Or if you are getting them and don't want them anymore, then just unsubscribe. We have went through the list and cleaned some up, people that haven't uh, been active and haven't been receiving opening emails from us. And it may be because you've changed your account, uh, your your agency email is blocking us, or you just don't open our emails anymore. Either way, those have been removed. So if you do want to receive updates from us, training announcements, uh, updates about new new things we've got coming up or opportunities for you in your area, things like that. Just go in and subscribe to our email list and you'll receive that. Also, on just about every site, the Coroner Talk site and Death Investigation Training Academy site, there is a pop-up that comes up that gives, lets you uh, sign up for a 12, It's well, it was 12 weeks. Now it's six weeks, but it's 12 issues, 12 emails of a free training. You get a a little bit of uh, written text training that you can read through and then a video to back that up. And several things, several topics will be discussed within those 12 episodes. So anyway, that's a free training. You can can go from there. And then from there, you'll also be on our mailing list and you can get updates. A lot of things out there for free. If you'll just go to the Corner Talk site, go to resources. You can go to cornertalk.com slash investigator. You can also get that free course there. So a lot of things there for you. If there's something you need specific, let me know. I'll be glad to give it to you. And then the last thing is, if you haven't recently left a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Overcast or any of those platforms that you use, uh, please go out and do that. Apple Podcast is the big one, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcast. It, it, it really helps us to be able to be found and to let somebody else know that uh, we're here. So if you haven't done that in a while, run over there, just take a second to leave us a five-star review or a four um, if, if you if you think we deserve it. I don't want anything we don't deserve. And then leave a comment about the show, what you find interesting about the show, things like that. So 
I would very, very much appreciate that. So without any further delay here, I'm going to let you go and get along with your week. Uh, This week that is just coming out, I am in Mississippi and meeting the people down there again. I was there last year. Loved the people in Mississippi. Gracious that I'm coming back. And it's going to be a great week. So until next week, everybody, find a way to be a blessing. And above all, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue. 